the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something there beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last post just That's true, Dr. Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Because we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood and Company. All right, higher side chatters. One of the topics we like to tackle most is those early chapters of the human story. Where do we come from? What were ancient civilizations really like? Has human progress actually been a steady incline as we're taught? Or has it been a more complex saga of peaks and troughs, which might have had several highly advanced societies lost from the records of today? Well, folks, as more and more evidence is unearthed and ancient sites and artifacts discovered, the holes in what we thought was a pretty well-supported mainstream perspective grow even bigger. And the established authorities resort to making up the story as they go along, trying to shoehorn new discoveries into the same old tired narrative. From the out-of-Africa theory to the deceptive, degrading descriptions of indigenous societies encountered by Western expansion, we're seeing more and more aspects of the human story that need to be reworked or rewritten entirely, and the implications for the collective psyche of the planet are no small matter. Thankfully, the father-son research team of Stephen and Evan Strong have been neck deep in these issues for decades, and their perspective is far different from what the authorities would like us to know. Stephen, who's with us today, is a teacher with a background in Aboriginal archaeology and education who co-wrote two units of the Masters of Aboriginal Studies program for Sydney University and the New South Wales Department of Education, and of course, he's Evan's dad. And together they've written several books about their out-of-Australia perspective, including Forgotten Origin, Shunned, the Hidden History of the Original Australians, and most recently, Out-of-Australia, Aborigines, the Dreamtime, and the Dawn of the Human Race, which brings together 30 years of intensive research and consultation with the elders in the original Australian community. Their dedication knows no bounds, and I can't think of anyone more appropriate for such a show. In honor and a pleasure, Stephen Strong, welcome to the higher side. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for the introduction. I don't really feel like I've got much more to say now. I think you've just about summed it up. <laughs> well, all right. Thanks for your time. <laughs> but no, nah, man, you got plenty more to say because you wrote this great book full of a lot of information that was totally new to me, and it's pretty clear that you know how to make your case, so I'm pretty psyched. And to kick this off, give us a little context for how this subject matter became such a priority to you. Were there some early threads that you kept pulling on? Was it spending time with the elders themselves? How did this all unfold? It unfolds in the Department of Education. I was involved in setting up Aboriginal studies, being taught in the high schools, all the way through to the high school certificate. And over the years I did that, I taught on the field, won the Children's Trust, and because of that, the adults started to share things with me. And I began to realize that I was actually propagating lies. What I thought was the truth was just not the truth. And the elders were prepared to show me. And what's taken place from there is further down the line, I was asked to go back to review of the AB Studies course. And I thought, okay, I'll go back. And I told them to throw the whole thing away and start again. And that discussion didn't end well. And a couple of days after that, I resigned from the Department of Education and we started writing these books because I knew 
there was no way that truth could get in through mainstream. So we had to take a proactive course. I had to walk away. Mm. So from that small beginning, we wrote some books for University Press of America and we're very academic about it. That's why we did it that way. And some elders, particularly ones, the Ram and Jerry from South Australia, they approached us and I went down there for a week and a bit. At the end of it, they gave us ceremony and they gave us the right to start researching and talking to original people. And what's followed from there is that we've been in contact with elders and keepers of the old way throughout the whole of Australia. And because we've done ceremony and we've been working through this elder, Kano has just passed on, they've been forthcoming. Hmm. And we've realised that the whole of our history, and I think you summed it up really well, it's not just Australian history. There's much more to it than that. There's a, a collective psyche about where we came from, and it's all wrong. Mm-hmm. Everything, the last five to 6,000 years have been sort of a, just a, a bad mistake that's got worse. <laughs> and there was another way of living that the whole of the planet was living, and this is what we were learning. This wasn't just about the original people and how they lived in the past. It's what they exported to the rest of the world. And that's what we're talking about. It's not so much about a history lost. It's about the renaissance of a history that needs to come back today because what we have is just appalling. Mm-hmm. So, it's a, yeah, it's been a long story and we still don't know where we're going. The elders are basically tell us what to do. And every couple of days I'll get a phone call from an elder and they'll tell me something we didn't know. So we always keep adding to the story because it's such a huge one. Right. And the book is... So full of information, it makes an excellent case, and it is very academic. And before we get too much into it, let's talk about the mainstream out-of-Africa theory, because to understand the alternative, we got to clearly define what you're challenging here. And what Mm. can you tell us about how the out-of-Africa theory got started and who's really behind it and the evidence it was based on before we kind of start to dismantle that? Well, to do that, we had to do the same thing. We went to the paper. It was written by Professor Alan Wilson. A professor, uh, associate professor at the time, she's now Professor Rebecca Can, and they were geneticists. And there's a seminal paper which I've read many, many times, and it begins in the first paragraph, something like this: After 15 years of fighting between the paleontologists and the geneticists, we have been proved right, and they are wrong. So it starts with a declaration of victory, and what it does, it introduces us the theory to the so-called Eve. 150 to 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens evolved in Africa, and then they went out to the rest of the world. Now, that's the base. That's where it comes from. And, of course, many people have said, well, there it is. It's done by geneticists, and it was done in about 1991, I think this paper was put out. And that's where that thinking came from. Other papers came out of that. But what people don't know, if you read the paper very carefully, Greg, is it says probably came out of Africa. I want to make that point. It was never said they did. Now, the reason they said probably is genealogy and genetics do not give you geography. They give you a lineage, but they don't give you they lived at 42 Smith Street anywhere. It just tells you that a lineage came through, not a position. And what was also interesting was that they made a molecular clock. It's quite famous, the human clock, and around about 150,000 years and then 5 million years before that, we became hominids came and there was something before that and that clock was based on two facts they thought happened in Australia the first one that the original people were the youngest and one third genetically as diverse as the Africans 
And the second one was they, they got there 50,000 years ago. And here's their thinking. If they got there between 50 to 60,000 years ago and they're one-third as genetically diverse, you multiply that together, you get 150 to 180,000 years ago. And that's, ladies and gentlemen, how they came up with that figure. <laughs> Based on two events that took place in Africa. Sorry, yeah, in Australia. What is interesting is both Professor Alan Wilson and Rebecca Can have both recanted on that. Rebecca Will, uh, Can was the first one to say she did study. She did a study on 126 vials of blood that came from 26 indigenous groups and found the original people were not only the oldest, that they evolved 400,000 years ago from two lineages. Now, they said in their paper it was 50,000 years. They're out by a factor of eight. Hmm. She also said they're the most genetically diverse. And in the paper, they said they were the least genetically diverse. And ladies and gentlemen, all of the other studies and genetic work that's come has come out of their second set of studies. I can tell you that Alan Wilson came to Australia twice and collected his own samples to check this out. In 90, I think 89 and 87, he came down and checked it out. And he collected 31 samples and he found 22 different genetic variations. And he found from that that they had been in that country at least 77,000 years at a minimum. And he said, if I collect, if I kept collecting more vials of blood, I would still get that 70% mutation rate. It might go back hundreds of thousands of years. So what we've got, Greg, is all the other studies came from the studies of the two people who came from the Out of Africa theory who introduced it. They then did further research as genetics got more sophisticated and they found there were so many other stories and many others have followed that up. All we've done in our book, yes, it is academic, we just trawled all the other works and tried to put a big picture into that. We tried to show you there's a commonality here mm -hmm. and the commonality is that the original people are incredibly old and have no genetic relationship whatsoever to the Africans. Hmm. See, that last point is kind of the most interesting that they have no genetic connection no. to the Africans. I mean, that's kind of mind-blowing probably to a lot of people because it's not so much to say that we move the target from Africa to Australia, but to say there's no connection, I mean, there's uh, something you're going to underline a couple times and put some exclamation points next to You've got to because it's such an interesting part of this equation. Look, you've got to remember this. Africans, the African race, have no Denisovan in them at all. Right? Denisovan is a group of hominids that have been around in the countryside from at least 16,000 years ago to half a million years ago. We've got traces from in Spain and Siberia. They're all around the place, right? Now, there is one group in the world that has the highest link of Denisovan in them which is the original people. My reading of Denisovan is 4.7, which means that one twentieth of my DNA today is Denisovan. The Africans have none. We're supposed to be told we're from the same race. Let me give you another one. We've now discovered a new genetic strand, which we haven't written about yet, that is found only in original people, and they cannot find a hominid on the planet that's related to, but it's only in original people. I would ask your readers, or listeners rather, because <laughs> if there is, we have got Denisovan, I'm 4.7, and no African has got any reading of Denisovan, I've got within me a strand of mitochondrial DNA that belongs to a hominid or something, I'm not convinced it is, that no one can find, and the Africans don't have it. How can we be related? Mm. I mean, I don't have to be a geneticist to work that one out. It is pure common sense. And by the way, 
just in case you didn't know this, ladies and gentlemen, the Africans have no Neanderthal in them too. How is it all the other races have all those mixtures within them and the Africans who are supposed to be our ancestors have none of them? Hmm. They don't answer those simple questions. As I said, we try and collect all that information and put it into a picture that we can understand. We try, I know it's academic, but we do try and make it readable because it really is a common sense story here. You've got to remember, in 1990, they began genetics. Now we are nearly 30 years further. They've got better. We mainly cite the most recent studies. I mean, people may not know this, but the longest and the largest study of Y chromosomes was done by two Russians. It's called the walkthrough thing. Walkthrough chromosome testes, Y chromosomes. And what they did was they took files from 400 willing volunteers who gave their semen up to a better cause and they were analysed. And they came from anywhere but Africa, all over the world, but not Africa. And then they compared them to 13 distinct African markers. That's for men. And they wanted to get a match. And out of 5,200 possible matches, they got none. And what the researchers said is we don't know where, where Adam came from in Adam and Eve and this story that it came from Africa. But one thing we can tell you is Adam is not African. So if Eve is African, and Adam isn't. It must have been a long-term relationship, long-distance relationship, because there's no way genetically when you study Y chromosomes, it was only done three years ago, there is no African link in anyone other than Africans from the Y chromosome part of the equation. So when you put these things together, and there's plenty of them, you have to say, okay, the out-of-Africa theory doesn't work, but the real question in this group is the new chromosomes that have been found in original people. And I, I, this is what we find the most interesting part of this story. What they've said is, it's not Denisovan. It's not Neanderthal. It's not Red Deer Caveman. It's not Homo Enigma. It's not Florensis. We know about all these different hominids now. This is about 15 or 16. We found them all. We said we did. Well, where'd this one come from? Now, I've asked the original people, and I can tell you I've asked all of them the same question, and they've all given me the same answer. I said, you blokes aren't going to find it. Because the extra set of chromosomes we've just discovered, which, by the way, is scientific fact, and they'll tell you they don't know where they come from, they all tell me they come from the Pleiades. And that's when the story gets interesting. <laughs> right. Yes. That was going to be my next question for you, was to oh, bring up the elders and the original Australians a bit more. I mean, obviously, you guys have spent a lot of time with them, and they seem to preserve their oral history and deliver it in layers, a lot like a secret society tends to do. And I wondered if you could elaborate on this process and how the human story goes according to them. Well, what happens is when you're with original people, the elders, you're drip-fed information as they see fit. Never ask them a question because you'll never get an answer. And it'll come when, when they think you need to hear it, not when you ask it. Normally when you ask a question, they think you don't need to hear it then because you're asking too much. You should learn. As far as this is concerned, the healing process that's taking place, my understanding is the original people believe that that genetic cross was agreed to. And people need to understand when the Pleiadians, and this is what they've told me, I'm passing on the story as I've been told, there was a healing process that began right back at the very beginning where original people and Pleiadian genes were crossed. And from that point on, they then went around the rest of the world and all races have within them, they might think it's just in the original people who've detected a massive amount of this genetic information they can't recognise. Every human being on the planet 
has original genes within them. I could talk about another study that proves that, but we won't for now. My point being that that is now being generated and being activated. So within each of us is a healing gene that was placed there way back in the beginning. It was part of a long-term plan. The original people are adamant that their countrymen, and that's a word they use a lot, are the Pleiadians, and they came here and they began in Australia and they seeded the hominids from there and those genes are spread everywhere. And as the resonance of the earth vibrates and picks up, and I'm sure you're aware of the fact that it's now above 100 on occasions and it was around seven or eight, that is what it's activating. So the healing process has began. The original elders, and I can tell you this, the reason why we've been shown so many sacred stuff that people haven't seen before, and some of which we can't show you, but 95% we do, because that's the whole deal here, no secrets. We're shown this stuff because they believe there is a change of foot. There's no one elder I have met that I'm working with that doesn't know that. The change is taking place, and it's taking place within us, and those genes are resonating. And the studies we're doing in this country and the sacred objects we're finding are part of that process too. So it, it has begun already. There are sacred rocks and sacred places we're working with at the moment that are part of that process too. And there will be a change. Mm. And it's going to start in Australia. That's one of the parts of this story. That's why it's called Out of Australia. Because it began here and it starts again here. That's an Adam Arthur saying we all know. It will begin again here. Mm. Well, I think a lot of us are feeling a need for some change. So maybe positive <laughs> days are ahead. And as far as the Pleiadians' motivations, mm. what can you say about that? Because it's kind of interesting. Well... Again, I, I try not to as much as I can put in any of my own opinions. I might have to put one into this, but I, I'll, I'll preface that first. My understanding is the motivation goes way back to the seeding of this planet. I have a rock, which I'm the custodian of the moment. I know the dreaming story that goes with that. And that rock tells us of a place when they sent a spear from the Pleiades to seed this planet. And it was thrown from Pleiades and landed at Uluru, which is Ayers Rock. Some people know it as that's a rock in the middle of Australia. And if you look at that rock, you'll find it is like spear-shaped. It's like a cone that points goes to a point, and the top is where they seeded this place. There was a long-term plan to seed the country and to seed this whole place because how can I put this? There's an understanding. I'm going to go back to an elder again. Bear with me because they sometimes spend a bit of time to get to the point, and I'll have to tell the story because it's told to me. Sure. And I have been told I waffle a lot, but I'm going to do it again. I'll go back to, and hopefully I remember where I was before that, I asked one of my elders, why did the aliens come here, the Syrians, the Pleiadians, why did they bother? I said, I look at this place today and I see nothing worthwhile. I honestly don't. I don't want to be too down about this, but we don't behave well. We behave poorly. We spend one fifty cents in every dollar in security and killing each other. We can't cooperate. Why would they bother? And he smiled at me. And this is the only time I ever got an answer off an elder. I thought, look, I deserved it because I thought, you want me to do all this stuff and talk about this? God, I can't believe they bother. Anyway, he smiled at me and said, I want you to think of all of the different forms of aliens as varying shades of the very first alien that was depicted in a favorable manner on mass TV, mass media. And I had to think about that. He said, I want you to think of one show where we finally have an alien that was a friend and I couldn't come up with it. And he told me, and it's an American one It's Star Trek and it's Dr. Spock. Okay. Now he said, I want you to remember what Dr. Spock was like. I said, yes, he was very 
very intelligent. He understood what was right and wrong. And he said, but did he understand love? And I thought, I said, no, he didn't. He said, did he understand our emotions? I said, no, he didn't. He said, that's why they come. He said, that's why they come. He said, because this planet, of all the planets in the universe, is the strongest, has the strongest vibration of pure love. Now, every being on this planet gets affected by that. I mean, I know a story of the shingleback lizards of Australia where one mates with another, and if it gets run over on the road, the other one won't leave. It'll die with it rather than leave its mate. So it affects all of us. And he said, the aliens, Dr. Spock, think of him as a Pleiadian. He's got an understanding of what's right and wrong and fights for us and stands by us, but never quite understood us. And he, and he said, all the others are varying degrees of that, and some don't care at all. They just come here to find out how I can get this. I'll cut it up and see if it's inside. What is going on here? They're drawn because this planet is different. Now, the Pleiadians, the reason why they've done this, and I was getting to that point, and he got to the same point, was they wanted to live here, not just visit and impose, but live with us and become part of this. And the only way they could do it is their body was not strong enough for the heat and the gravity here, is they had to live underneath the ground and create something they could incarnate into. And that was the agreement. So the Pleiadians, and there are many people today, Greg, that claim they are Pleiadian. I'm not. I don't claim anything like that. I don't claim I'm anything but a fallen human. But many believe it strongly. And I believe that they are. They're incarnated. Pleiadians have been here all that time waiting for something to happen. So they've seeded us in a lot of different ways in that through the soul, they are incarnated into original people and non-original people and through our genetics. So they're part of the process. So when the original people tell me the Pleiadians are our countrymen and I know that all humans came from original people, then we are all countrymen of the Pleiadians and that was their plan. Hmm. It's a clever plan. It was hatched billions of years ago, but that's the process that's going on. And we now are living in a planet and place that's unlike any other in the cosmos. And that's why they're here. Not of all of them are here for good reasons. Do not believe that everyone that's come from afar has come here as enlightened as them. The Syrians are nearly there. Others are not. Right. But they're drawn here because this place is special. And every human being that's incarnated on this place has the potential to be greater than all of them. Hmm. Remember that. Original people have a saying. Every person in their tribe has magic. It just depends how much. At the moment, our magic is gone. We really are. We've lost that skill and all those skills. Occasionally, we see freak people that have telepathy can speak to those that passed on, but we should all be able to do that. That is what every human here is capable of doing. That's why they come here. But at the moment, they're pretty damn disappointed. We're not doing a very good job. Man, I really think that cosmology is fascinating. And I know Michael Tellinger is another researcher I enjoy who you guys have worked with. And you mentioned the Syrians. And, uh, you know, that is his contention, I guess, that we were spawned as a slave race for mining, probably from beings that came from the Sirius star system. Is it possible that multiple alien races came here to engineer beings for different purposes? Look, Michael has worked with us and we, we still keep in contact. In fact, he wrote a lovely reference on the back of our book, which we're eternally grateful for. Michael and I, I fully, um, we believe exactly the same thing in Africa. The Syrian genes are there. They're one part of the component of what we are today. And that's why so many people today are still so drawn towards following authority. Yes. It's genetically bred into them through our genes. 
But don't forget, we have other genes within us too. Yes, we are really a dog's breakfast of genes. They've all stuck their nose into this. This human beings, homo sapiens, give me a break. We're not wise, homo emotional, emotional, absolutely. We're not sapiens, sapiens. That's not what we are. We are driven by emotion. We're driven by love. We're driven by emotion more than any other group that's around. But remember within that, the most powerful force on the planet, any planet, is love. That's what draws them there. That's the real kick with this. Yeah. And look, we do believe the Syrians came to begin with. I believe they've evolved since then because everyone evolves on this planet. They can't help but not be. It is part of the makeup of this planet. It radiates it. But to begin with, yes, they wanted compliant miners. We're fully in agreement with Michael. And Michael also agrees, and it's very clear here, Syrians never came to Australia. It was Pleiadian-only territory. It must have been some sort of gentleman's agreement before they fought that this was their territory, a new mob could have the rest, but here the original people maintained that pure bloodline until Cook came, where they basically had original blood bloodline and they also had their Syrian, uh, sorry, the Pleiadian bloodline. But in other places, yes. But, of course, now the original bloodline, they've got the other stuff in there too now. There's very few people of full full descent original anymore and they have some of the Syrian stuff in there too and all the other mobs there. My understanding from what I've been told is no less than 10 different groups that have stuck their nose in at different times. This really has been a basket case because every being wants a piece of the action here but nobody fully understands it better than the humans that are here. Even though we've got other stuff within us we are still the only ones that are being here all the time that can actually have got the strongest connection to the land. And that's where the original people live, with the land. Right now, the further humans are drawn away from the land, whether it be concrete underneath their feet or concrete all around them, they lose that connect with the land and they lose their humanity. And the other parts, those other parts that were put in there, the genes that make us what we were before, they kick in. And we start to mine like we did before, but it's a different type of mining. But we all get in lines again and we do what we're told. That's exactly what happened before. When we get away from the land, those genes become stronger. But when you're walking in the forest, the Pleiadian original genes, they come back into play. And right now, that's what people have got to try and do. Every person I'm speaking to today in America has within them they have Pleiadian genes, they have original dreams, they have American Indian genes within them. We're a mixture of everything now. No one is purely one thing. But what you've got to do is you've got to kick the dross out and contact the stuff within you, the beginning, the source, the original, and the Pleiadian genes. And if you follow those ones, those genes will take you forward. Hmm. The rest get in the way. <laughs> I love it, man. I, I think that's just so fascinating. And it's an interesting way to look at the past for sure. Much more epic than our mainstream story. Yeah. And I wanted to get into the archaeology a bit, too, because you talk about 10 sites or findings in Australia that can change the official story when you really only need one. Yeah. But can you tell us about a couple of these sites that you think are most impressive? Yeah, okay. Look, the trick I put to everyone, I said, is you say they got we got here fifty to 60,000 years ago, but there are sites here that, that contradict that big time. There are a couple that come to mind straight away. There's one at Lake George. Now, the person who did the work at Lake George is called Gurdup Singh. He's been doing core extractions. He did it in the Great Barrier Reef and got a, a date there of 180,000 years. And he got one in Lake George, which is 120,000 years. 
Now, what he found was he dug down this lake four million years. At 120 to 122,000 years, there was a massive increase in charcoal, massive increase, a 10-time increase in charcoal. Now, what was even more compelling was the charcoal increase only took place when the lake levels were high, not low, because people could say, oh, it was bushfires. No, when the place was green, there was more fire, and when it was dry, there was less. And what he concluded correctly was it's fire stick farming. Now, one academic in the whole of the country has challenged that date and said, no, no, I disagree with 120. I think it should be 60. I will take 60. I'll take 120 because the story is the Africans got here between 50 to 60,000 years in the top of Australia, edged their way around the coast because they're mariners first and then slowly made their way in and got into the middle around 30,000 years ago. Well, this is 60,000, 120,000 years ago, which means they're here much earlier than that. Now, that's one of those. There's one of those places there. Now, no one has argued the Gerdup Singh because he's the Australian expert. He's done this all over the country for 30 years. No one's going to argue the point. He was right in doing this, and he found another site at Great Barrier Reef where he found the same charcoal accumulation taking place 180,000 years ago. And in that case, the same story took place. And he was working with two other people. One was Jim Bowler, and the other one was Peter Owendike. Now, Jim Bowler is the greatest defender of the out-of-Africa theory in Australia. Hmm. What's amazing was he signed up on this paper saying that humans were burning off in the countryside 180,000 years ago. Now, there's that type of evidence that's taking place all over. Now, we've also got a third site, which is a place called Panoramity. And there you have an engraving. That's about hundred, about 300 k's inland. It's near um, Lake Eyre in the middle of Australia in the desert. And there there is a, an engraving, which I've seen the plaster mould of, I've had my hands on it, of a saltwater crocodile, which is stunning. It's got about 150 scales, all of different sizes, been engraved into this rock. Now, the beauty of this is, the experts have told me, saltwater crocodiles have not been in that area anywhere near there for at least 80,000 years. And here we are, 300 k's off the coast, right in the middle of the desert, in the middle of Australia, and humans are creating something that is no less than, say, 85,000 years old. And the artwork there, the saltwater crocodile had to be about 16 to 17 feet long because the head is six foot long of itself. And then there's writing along the side, which is actually Aboriginal writing, original rather, um, alphabet. What's amazing is this is happening 30,000 years before Africans got to Australia. Now, there are 10 other sites, 10 sites like that that all have people with PhDs that presented this information. We just collected it. Our question is, we only have to get one of them right to prove that people were in this country well before. And of course, Greg, you have the best proof of all. You have 55 skulls of original people that Dr. Walden Neves has he found in Brazil. Hmm. Now, you've got original, you've got Australian people living in your country before the American Indian people. And there's evidence coming out all over the place. They just did a study from, I think it's a place, a small university in America called Harvard University. <laughs> David Reich was the one that ran it. It was six other universities. It took three years to do and hundreds of academics where they went into the middle of the Amazon rainforest and collected the mitochondrial DNA from two tribes. One's called Tupu and I forgot the other one. And they collected them because they married with each other and wouldn't let others in. And they said, this is the purest blood we have in America to tell us where people came from. And you know what the closest mitochondrial match in the world was? Australia. Hmm. And after Australia, it was Papua New Guinea, which was part of Australia. And then it was daylight. 
what you have there, mitochondrial DNA tells us back the front, is your first people from America before the American Indians are the people who came from Australia. So the proof of the existence of the original people wandering the world and their genes spreading everywhere is in front of us now. The science is coming up every day with more stories about that. And we've got to look at those stories and say, this must be true because the science tells us this. Right. I thought that was a great part of the book that skulls found in the Americas, the experts say they look more like Australian skulls than the African ancestor skulls. And exactly. that's very intriguing. And also in terms of anomalous artifacts or sites, there's something else. I think it's pronounced the carrion glyphs, yep. which are pretty impressive from the standpoint of possibly an original language or possibly some collusion with the Egyptians, right? Yeah. We're actually going to put up, oh, this sounds like an ad. I do apologize. It's great. <laughs> we just put a webinar up about a week ago. We're starting that. And the next one up is going to be solely devoted to the carry-on glyphs. And we're going to bring in Giorgio, I'm hoping to, from Ancient Aliens, because he came down and had a look at it. Yeah, we are. And we're going to bring in somebody who worked for the government who's going to spill the beans on the cover-up, which is going to be interesting. Very simply what it is, it's three walls. And on it are hundreds upon hundreds of engraved hieroglyphs. Now, they've been cut, and they've been cut with metal blades. Now, the original people are supposed to only have stone, stick, and bone technology. Never had metal until Mr. Cook came and landed with the, the British. Well, that's wrong. Now, what we found is some people have claimed that it's a fake, but it isn't a fake, and we sort of covered that pretty well anyway, and they're starting to back off on that anyway. Now, they're starting to give up on it. What it is is there's one section there. Now, we've looked at it, and we've actually got a manual from the first person who went in that was working with the Egyptians at the time, and we've got handwritten notes saying this is spot on, this is the right manual. We looked at the manual, and the first wall tells us of two brothers, two Egyptian brothers, sons of Khufu. Their names are Nefer-Dejeb and Nefer-Teru. And they were stranded on this place, two boats, and they could not get back. One of the two brothers went west for two seasons and was bitten by a snake twice. It's that specific. And I've got to tell you, in Australia, man, when you're bitten by a snake the first time, you move your foot around. You don't get bitten the second time. That's clumsy. <laughs> right. And it then says, this, oh, well, that's the sad part of the story coming up now. I don't want to upset the readers, but he died. That's the story. And it's written there. And, yeah, look, we've got the manual out and we've read it and we're not arguing the point. That wall is all Egyptian. We do argue the point about the next two walls. We think it's an older language, but we do have no doubts. And we've also found a second set of glyphs, which we've discussed, and we've discovered them, and we've put them up recently, a long way away from there, telling us where he was buried. And it's written exactly like that, and even tells us where to go. And it mentions that the son of a pharaoh has died there. So, yes, we know someone's died there. And to add to that, we were given by Arnie Minimace who went there the first time that this other fellow went there, and she picked up two objects, which she's given to us. One of them is a bone. It's the hip bone. And she says, she's been told, it is the hip bone of Nefertaru. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that was a bit much to give me that. And they also gave me some jewelry that said was from him. It was found near the back shaft where he was buried. We took that hip bone to the local base hospital. I talked to the head of the fractures unit, and he looked at it, and he, it's very grey and very old. And he said, this is very old because it's very light. And he said, it could be. 
He said, but I can't tell. He said, the only way I'm going to tell is a CAT scan. I said, right, then how much does that cost? He says, well, what you want, a couple of thousand dollars. He said, but we'll do it for free. And by the way, they did. And they were quite taken by it. I'm not allowed to say which hospital it is, but they did do it for free because I've got the CAT scan readout. Beautiful. The CAT scan readout, and they told me, they said, look, the patient here is not going to complain. We're going to give him six times the normal dosage and we'll have a close look. And no, the bone never made a complaint, so we let it go. <laughs> they told us at the finish that it has exactly the same density as a human bone and it's extremely old. That's all they know. So that was given to me. And alongside it, I was also given a pendant, which has now been analysed by the top laboratory in Australia. And this is where it gets very interesting, Greg. I know what's inside that pendant. 72% of it's aluminium. Here's the trick. Egyptians have never had aluminium. Secondly, to cook aluminium, you need 3,700 degrees. This is ancient. This is before cook. Then it gets weirder. It's got 3% zinc. And then it's got 24, sorry, 20, that's right, 24% of the metals inside the pendant I have next to me right now come from metals that cannot be identified. Hmm. And they, this guy, I've spoken to the head of the department, they're blown away by it. They thought it could have been an oxide, so they did a double chest. It is not. 24% of the metal that came from the carry-on glyphs, some people tell you the whole thing's a fake, but I'm trying to tell you in a blackfellow way, roundabout, that it's not, was picked up by Arnie Minimos, who's one of our most important elders in our whole country, given to me as protection. She said, this particular pendant will protect you because it's not fully from air. Now, 24% of that metal I have with me right now, no scientist on this planet knows where it comes from. Now, hang on for a sec. Haven't I got some genes inside me right now that come from somebody that nobody on this planet doesn't know about? Hmm. There's a commonality in this story, isn't there? So, yeah, it's an amazing place. It's got an Egyptian story about the two brothers coming here, and they did. I've checked with the elders. They came, and they stayed here for 4,000 years, and they left 400 years ago, and I know why they left. I don't know what they did when they broke the law, but they had continual residence here for four, over 4,000 years, they were allowed to stay. That's all fine. They came. But remember this, the pendant that Nefertiru wore has metal in there, aluminium. The Egyptians have none. They don't have bauxite. But secondly, no one on this planet has 24% of what's in that particular. And I've got the readout given to us by the laboratory too, so we're not making it up. 24% of that metal doesn't come from this planet. Wow. So there's two stories on those walls. And by the way, the reason I'm telling you this, Greg, is on the other two walls, there is what the public calls other UFO glyphs. Yes. And guess what? It is the most common glyph on the other two walls. <laughs> and I didn't call it the UFO glyphs, but that's exactly what it looks like. It's just half a semicircle with legs coming out the back. Some are plummeting down. Some are coming down the right way. Five are coming down the right way and three are plummeting. And there's a story with that too. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot in that place. It's a very important place. And the government is fighting desperately for this not to become mainstream. Mm. In fact, to that end, we tricked the ABC, which is like the BBC in England. We tricked one of their reporters to come on site and look at this whole thing. And she was so taken by it. Her name is Mary Louise Vince. So I'm not making this up too. She made up a news item that went through the whole of this nation as the second item on the news item for the ABC. It was a one minute 40 item about how fantastic that place was and that Egyptians were there. 
They put it up on their website to say this is an amazing site, and within two hours, it was taken off every radio station in the whole of Australia, and the website was taken down and never put up again. It is the only time in the ABC's history that a news item has been taken off while it was still on air. So that's what the government thinks of what's going on with that site. So that gives you a very quick rundown of carry-on. So ladies and gentlemen, you work out whether it's legitimate. I will put it to you, if the Australian government are fiddling with news items about the place and bringing them down. And by the way, I had an academic that follows us that badgered the ABC for a year for a reason for putting it down. And they did give an official reason. And their reason for putting it down is this. And he was given this reason on email. and I've seen it. We don't have to give one. <laughs> End of story. Wow. And by the way, the ABC is paid by the taxpayers. We pay for that ourselves. It's a publicly funded broadcasting network. So that's the story of Carry On. It's very legitimate. It's got the story about the Egyptians being here, but then it's got an even bigger inconvenient truth. Someone came from up there down here, and it's on those walls. <laughs> I love it, man. That is a, a great breakdown. And, you know, I've heard you say that not only does Australia seem to be the birthplace of culture, of humanity, but also the birthplace of magic. And you mentioned magic earlier. And I've always been intrigued by shamanic practices and the shocking ability of those who take that path. Have you seen or been told about any impressive aspects of these indigenous esoteric practices with the elders that you've been in contact with? What a great question. I've answered this a few times. Yeah, I'm going to tell you one. And there's a person who act as a witness and their name is Graham Hancock. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I went on a tour of Armenia for two weeks with Graham. Ah, there you go. So, okay, then you know I'm talk- I'm using a reputable witness here. Aren't I? And by the way, Santa was there too. Oh, yeah. Okay, so how about I tell you a story about shamanic magic that's taking place two years ago because it's not gone in this country. That's one of the things this mob are offering. I'll tell you a story that's true. And there were eight people there, and two of the people who saw it was Graham Hancock and Santa. Wow. So they can back this one up. And this is what happened. My teacher the elder Kano, who's the elder of the Ramanjari, the one that brought, gave us ceremony. So Graham spent six days with us looking at the stuff we're seeing, amazed by it. I said, you can spend the six days with us, Graham, but on the seventh day, to understand this properly, you have to come on country, sacred country, and be with an elder of the past and spend some time with them. And he agreed to do it. So this was the, the payback. We took him on country for six days, showing some of the stuff we've got in our book there. In return, he had to do his duty with the elder. So this is what happened that night. We're sitting around the campfire because we've got this massive campfire. And I'm doing one thing. And all of a sudden, Kano appears from nowhere, done up old way, fully painted up, just the loincloth, all the paints across there, all the different ochre designs. And he started singing in country, and uh, language rather. Spoke to us some of the time, did a whispering song, did some other stuff, which I can't talk about now because that's not really important. He said some stuff to us. A lot of it was done in old language. And then he translated back into Australian, or in English rather. Probably Australian is a better way of putting it. Then in the finish, Greg, in the finish, this is what he did. He walked back one step. And we all watched him, of course, because he said nothing. He just walked back that step. Graham was sitting next to me at the time, so I know exactly what happened. Then he walked back the second step. When he walked back the second step, he completely disappeared. Hmm. No one could see him. Now, that campfire we're on is surrounded by blue metal gravel. When you walk on it, it makes a noise. Within a second, there he was standing behind his wife, Christine, and we asked her about this later. 
They're about 40 metres away, and he's got this huge smile on his face, and he's just reappeared. I look back at Graham, and his mouth has opened so wide, mate, a thousand flies could have flown in, and he wouldn't have known. We had nothing we could have said. In fact, nobody said a thing for, oh, shit. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have sworn. No, you can. No one said anything for about half a, half a minute or so. And then nobody was going to ask Kono a thing. But I know that somebody went up to Christine later on because we just – you don't know really what to say. And somebody said to Christine, what happened then? And their answer was, don't ask me. I've never seen that one before either. Now, I've got to tell you with this guy, that is not unusual. This is part of what I said about the magic we have within. And I did ask him later about this, much later, like way later. And he said, it's simple. Everyone here comes from both sides. He said, you don't know it, but I do. So what he's saying is he just went to the other side, made his way around the other side, and then came back again. We just couldn't see him. <laughs> we have actually done, and I forgot this. Evan has told me this once. We have actually done a disappearing ceremony with an elder, and I forgot that actually can happen. But that's not the only thing you can do. On another occasion, have you heard of Dr. Doolittle, Greg? Yes, I have. Well, i got a story that's better than that. On another occasion, I went on to site. And when I go on to site, I always do a ceremony. And this time, Arnie Bev, one of my other elders who teaches me, she was crook with a leg and she couldn't go into country and she couldn't smoke us. So at that stage, I wasn't allowed to give smoking. So I did another ceremony that Uncle Jerry told me to do when going onto a sacred site. But it wasn't at the right place, but we did it anyway. And as we came in, an owl flew out and left a feather behind. We thought that was a good sign. My God, it wasn't. <laughs> Anyway, we did our business on this site, which is in New South Wales, near Carrion, actually. And then we get back home. About four hours later, I get a phone call from South Australia, 3,000 k's away, and it's, it's Carno. He's on the phone. He said, I'm sitting in front of a red kangaroo that's come to my door. It's sitting with me at the moment. He's told me a story about what you've been up today. I thought, oh, I'm in trouble here. He said, did you go on country today? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did, I did. He said, did you smoke yourself? He said, my, my kangaroo says you didn't. He said, no, no, I didn't. I didn't. But we did another ceremony. He said, yeah, he told me about that. You did it with the rocks, didn't you? You stacked them up. I said, yeah, I did. He said, yeah, that's why you're still alive. Otherwise, you would have been killed then and there. He said, I got a message. He said, the owl told. Another bird has told the kangaroo. He's now told me. He said, you ever go on the country again and smoke yourself, they'll kill you. And then he hung up the phone. I was in a bit of shit for a while, I can tell you that. But I want to tell you something. That message, that owl left four hours before and got to the Kangaroo Island, which is 3,000 k's away, that message went from animal to animal and was doing 7, 750 k's per hour. Huh. That's the speed of a jet. And it got to him and he knew exactly what I was doing because the animals told him. Now, Greg, there's two examples of what the shamans call magic. But if you ask Kano, he said, "That's well, I can do it. Why can't? In fact, that's what he said. I can do it. Why can't you? <laughs> and that's the story about what the original people have and what their genes still have. By the way, I still can't do any of those things. I'm afraid I'm a long way off that. I still can't do them. But that's what he can do. And both those things are not make-believe stories, but true stories. I'll swear that on 20 Dax of Bible. And so will, on the first one, so will Graham. Hmm. Now, there's some examples of what they can do and still can do. And I reckon, as I've told people before, if you give me a choice between the flashes, flat screen TV with all the accompaniments and all the bells and whistles, or the ability to be able to pass messages and talk to animals or disappear and appear at will, I'll pick the second one. Thanks, guys. I pick it every day. Amen.
Yeah, those are amazing stories, man. And speaking of Dr. Doolittle, in the book, you guys also have a picture of a bunch of tribesmen standing in the water. And you talk about a unique fishing oh. situation with dolphins that really blew my mind. Can you tell us a little bit about this tradition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great picture. It's got about 25 men standing in the water. And the label underneath, the white for the label is Aboriginal men spearfishing. When you look very carefully, not one of them holds a spear. There's one man that holds a branch that is thrashing on the water there. That's it. But they are fishing. But, of course, again, this is part of what the original people were doing. This is what happened up and down the coast. The original people and the dolphins, and I'm not, this is true. It's well known everywhere. They formed a relationship. They could communicate with one another. Now, when the old men, and you'll see in that picture, there's one man that's standing up. What he's doing is he's singing to the dolphins. He's singing the dolphin's song. When the dolphins hear that song, and they may be kilometres away, they will come. And what actually happens is the dolphins then drive. I don't know what the fish is because I'm a vegetarian. I'm not sure. It's either mother or something like that. They drive schools of fish in, and they drive them towards the men who are standing in the shallow part. And when it gets really shallow, the fish can't swim backwards. And then what happens is the men pick up enough for their tribe and enough for the dolphins, and they split it equally. And then they feed the dolphins, they give them all the fish, and then the dolphins don't have to go and damn well chase the damn things. They wait there, and they get given all the food, and then the men go back, and they feed their tribes for days on end. And when that's finished, they go back and sing to the dolphins again, and they both learn to work together. And what it is, according to the elders, it's a meeting, and ladies and gentlemen, this is what they said, a meeting of equals. We've got to understand this. This business of up being on the top of the pyramid is wrong. It's a meeting of equals where two equals work together with equal intelligence and they cooperate with each other. This was done not just there. It was done up and down the coast everywhere, everywhere. Very few men ever went out spearing for fish. As long as they had a relationship with the dolphins, most of the time they would work together. It was common. And what they did is they find a shallow place to drive them back in, then they pick the fish up and they share them up. That's the best way to go fishing because guess what? You never come home and say the big one got away. No, it's standing next to your feet, man. Just pick it up and put it in a basket. And that's why these men had so much time to become spiritual. You see, they did a study on original people in the desert, in the middle of the desert where it doesn't rain, and they found that original men and women were spending no more than four hours a day getting food. Hmm. The rest of the time was free time. And on the coast, it was less than that. This was actually heaven on earth, man. There was no one working for the men. They all worked for each other. And in this case, they didn't just work for each other. They also worked for the dolphins too. They worked as a group. But yeah, that's the way we do things here. It's a lot better than throwing a hook out with a bait because you know you're going to get a catch. <laughs> and think of the people they hang around with. You get to hang around with the dolphins. That's not bad neighbors, is it? No, not at all. That's uh, something I've always wanted to do is get in the water with dolphins. People say it's a pretty transformative experience. Imagine if you're doing it nearly every second or third day and you're working in partnership with them. And right. here's the point. Do you know what? When the men, when the old men would ever row across the other side of the river, the dolphins would always escort the old men across. They'd escort them all the way there and back just to make sure there weren't any sharks around and stuff like that. This was actually quite a very strong connection between tribes up and down the coast and the original people. And when I said about original people in the book, I talk about what they export aboard, that was part of what they taught. 
Hmm. It's part of what they taught others in different places. They would have taught the Indian mob in America the same things, and they would have been doing it too. I'll guarantee you, you'll find stories in there about the same things taking place. None of this stuff was kept secret. It was meant to be shared with all of humanity, not countries. That is great. And your book is full of so much stuff. I can't believe we went this long without really talking about dream time. You've mentioned it a couple of times in passing, but tell the people how important this is to the elders and the original Australians and their culture. The dreaming is really the focal point of original life. Everything revolves. Now, you've got to remember, somebody once asked me, was there anyone in the country before Cook that didn't believe in God? And my answer was instantaneous, no. I didn't think about it. It was that quick. You lived in a society where there was never a doubt about the creation. Now, the difference, the reason why there was no doubt is because the spirits were in the land, they were in the clouds, they were in the birds, they were watching you constantly. There was nothing you could do that wouldn't be reported back through bird sign, through cloud sign, through some sort of sign that would give you up so that you've done something wrong. So the dreaming was your connection. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that connection and it might give the, the listeners a better idea how that works. One example would be that um, say you'd broken a really, really important sacred law. Let's say you'd gone into a sacred site and you'd broken a sacred object. You'd beg to be killed for that because that is considered worse than, well, it's up there with rape and, and murder. Mm. Those three things and that are the worst pride. You, you're killed for that straight away. There's never a question. If you've done that, you die. <laughs> but they wouldn't kill you. They'd set you free. It's such a bad crime, you could not get the honour of dying. Because if you died on country, your soul would disappear for a while, then it'd reincarnate back into another person or baby on that country, and your connection continues. If you're sent off country, and when you die, you die off country, your soul is lost in limbo forever. You can't reincarnate again. And they believe strongly in reincarnation, because reincarnation is part of the dreaming. Your connection to the land is eternal. So you have dreaming stories for that area that only belong to that area. There's only one dreaming story you'll find that runs to every tribe through the whole of Australia without exception, which is the Seven Sisters, which is a story about Pleiades, of course. That goes to every place. But apart from that, all other dreaming stories are belong to them alone. When you become a man, I'll give a story there from Diane Bell, who was the first female archaeologist to actually work with the women. When the boy was cut that night, the women would steal the boy away. And they'd repeat a mantra all night long. And it went something like this. It was from a woman you were born. It's a woman who will give you food. It's a woman you will marry. And after that, they give him back to the male. And then what would happen is the boy, who's now a man, would then go into country. And he'd be out there for three or four months. And he would find his dreaming. He'd find his spirit. He'd find his quest. And he'd make a connection, not with the land, but with the spirit of the land. And when he came back, the women would cry. The mother would cry and cry and say, my, my son's dying. And the son would say, but it's me, but it's me. And they cry for days. No, you're not my son. I don't know who you are. My son has died. And after about three days, they then say, yes, my son has died and turned into a man. Because that connection, when they go out there, they would go and find their dreaming, their totem. They'd start to make connection with the land. And then for the rest of their lives, their job would be to learn more dreaming stories, to get that connection to the land stronger, to understand how they can facilitate that their magic that's within them and that all comes under the auspices of the dreaming. You see, under the auspices of the dreaming, it even goes into daily life. 
If I marry my wife, which I did, I would then from that point on never be allowed to speak to my mother-in-law. I'm wondering about that one. I'm not going to make a comment about that. (laughs) Never. If I wished to speak to her, she might be in my presence. I'd have to tell someone else, would then tell her what I said, and then she'd tell them and come back. Interesting. Now, they said that. The dreaming says that happens because we don't need fights in tribes. And mother-in-laws believe no matter who marries their daughter, it's not good enough. It's funny how that still works today. (laughs) So they have rules about how you behave, who you can talk to. It runs into every part of their life. Let's say when you're born for the very first time. When you take your first steps, normally they take the baby away and they look at those first three footsteps when you stand upon the earth, which is the spirit, and they'll work out the rest of your life from that. Oh, he's a hunter. Yes, we can see that. Look at the way he stood there. And that will be what you're going to be. So it's all pervasive. Your first three steps is your career's exam. You've done your high school certificate. You've done your exam. You're going to become this. It was done in three steps. It's done. It's finished. So it's that strong a connection with the land. You belong to the land, you go back to the land, you come back to the land again and incarnate. It is an ongoing connection that began at the very beginning of time and never finishes. So it's not like a religion where you go to church one day and pray. You do it every minute of the day because the spirits are watching you constantly. Once you fully understand the dreaming, you realize that every time you come back here, you have no privacy whatsoever. There are spirits continually watching everything you do. And as we all know, there are things we all do we wish that no one would knew. Well, guess what? They do. That's the dreaming. I love it. And it is interesting that they reconcile or synthesize information about genetic engineering from the Pleiadians and the idea of a creator God. That's the same thing. You have to remember in our society, before the white fathers came here, we never didn't have a word for God. We called Bayami, Mula Mula, all of them sky heroes. Remember that? Now, we all, and the sky heroes know this too, there's a creation that creates all of that. And we were already here. We were created by that. But what the creator decided and what the players decided is to change that around. So from our point of view, they are sky heroes. The angels you talk about, yeah, of course they fly. They're sky heroes. And, of course, there are spirits, and they're part of that too. They're a different part of that same story. So the original people believe that the land is also part of God, and that's something that a lot of non-original people have lost track of. They believe that the spirit that's inside us is inside a tree and inside the rocks, particularly inside the rocks we're looking after at the moment. They believe that. They're absolutely convinced that everything has that essence within it. So therefore, if you know that God's watching you every second of the day, man, you're going to behave differently if you really believe it. If you absolutely believe it heart and soul like they did then, you'd think this would be heaven on earth. Of course it wasn't because I've got to tell you, it sounds that way, Greg, but I've got some bad news here. Hmm. Men still fought over women. (laughs) I believe it. It doesn't change. They didn't fight over money because there was no money. You can't fight over possessions because you can't own anything here. But we still manage, men still manage to find a way because, unfortunately, there's an imperfect design with men. We have something called testosterone, and sometimes it makes us angry. And when we get angry, we forget things. So even on Paradise, which is here, we know there were mistakes made by men, and we know there were some big mistakes made before the white fellas came here. 
so yeah hmm. it's a bit of a fool's paradise but it, it can work it can work hmm. and uh i know you've also worked with laird scranton a bit when it comes to some of the glyph translations and this yeah. idea of an original kind of more universal language which i believe the elders have said some things to you about but Laird's done some amazing research into the Dogon tribe, of course. Mm -hmm. Have you seen cultural similarities or parallels in some of their oral traditions or this idea of a universal language originally? Absolutely. In fact, we worked extensively with Laird on the other two walls. And I actually stand by Laird's translation of that. And I'll give you a very good reason why in a sec. But his translation of some of those glyphs is far more esoteric and far more scientific, talking about vibration, movement of gravity, and stuff like that. It's a secret language. And we went through his book, and we found all these links. And I can tell you now, on those two walls, there are at least 50 symbols that come straight out of Laird's book. Hmm. And there's some very big ones that come out of Laird's book. And we honestly believe that he's onto something there. In fact, I can tell you the opening symbol on the second and third wall, which we believe is of an ancient language, Laird is translated as being the opening part of the Naki language, which represents black man and serpent. Now, we're talking about the serpent religion of Australia, where the rainbow serpent is the most important part of the dreaming. Right. And we're talking about a black man, and there he is reading the same thing. We're fully on side with that. We actually do believe that when a proper translation is done of that, we believe that what Laird has got there should be a focal point on translating it, not what they're trying to do at the moment. You see, the matchup for Proto-Egyptian on the second and third wall is 44%. Now, on the first wall I spoke about with Nefertiru and Nefertizheb, my matchup is 88%. I'm prepared to accept that is Egyptian because it's such a high correlation to a manual that was approved by the Antiquities Department in Egypt. I'm happy with that. But when you're down below 44%, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced no matter who's done the translation that that is fully Proto-Egyptian anymore. I'm thinking it's from an earlier language that Laird is talking about, and we're very strongly behind on that. And I believe that what we've got there on those two walls, and I know Laird thinks the same because we spent some time working on that, is exactly that. We've got some of that language written there. So I think what makes that wall, that carrying more important is we have a statement from the Egyptians saying we were here, and that's about it really. Then we have a statement of the first language which says a bloody lot more. That's the one we really should be reading. And remember, within that, Laird's on about the same thing I am. We're talking about science. I was speaking to an elder three hours ago on the phone, and he said exactly this. We had technology today you guys wouldn't even know about. We walked away from that rubbish. Huh. And when are they going to wake up themselves? He said something to me. I've said this many times. This planet runs on high spiritual octane energy, and it doesn't need much technology. We've overdone it with the technology. That's why it's hurting and why we're hurting too. So, yeah, Lair's right. And you know what? I've got a strong feeling when we read that passage, it'll be as much as historical as it's going to be prophetic. We both think that too. So, yeah, look, I'm fully behind what he's doing there, and I think you're going to find when we finally get the government to give up on this site for what it really is, it's going to become one of the most important sites in the world. Hmm. Wow, man. So many discoveries. It's just such an amazing time to be alive. Isn't it? Ever? So yeah. many people out there doing great stuff. And 
So I wanted to ask you about this too, because a lot of listeners are going to be familiar with this perspective of a culture seeding group, this concept that maybe an advanced civilization like Atlantis was destroyed and some survivor group went around integrating with and elevating indigenous tribes. That's a popular narrative right now. Yeah. But I think I've heard you say something to the effect that according to these Australian elders, the white man came to learn not to teach. And that seems really hard to determine. Is there any way we can try and verify that kind of claim and parse out who really taught who? Look, the elders tell me they knew they were coming. I can also tell you, they won't go into details why, because I've only just got this information. I've got to work through it properly. The original society was imploding. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying the same happened with the American Indian society. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying in our case, there is a chance. And I'm also told that we had to learn off each other. And there were things we had to learn off the white fellas. And there's things the white fellas had to learn off us. Obviously, they've got to learn off us, the spiritual part of the equation, but there are things we had to learn too. And also, remembering that everyone has within them the same genes, it's time that we started to realize that, that we have a commonality. We've got to do something together and it's not fight each other. We've been doing that for too long. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, look, I, I can also tell you that a lot of original people don't refer to Australia as Australia. They refer to it as Mu, Lemuria. They have stories about these earlier civilizations falling apart. They're of the opinion there's about been three before. We've gone up and down this path quite a few times before. And I've got a suspicion this is going to be the biggest one of all. But, yeah, it's really hard to sort of work out where we're going to go next with this. But I can say one thing, Mm -hmm. that the original people believe the next two or three years are instrumental in deciding where each person's going to end up on this equation. They tell me that each person's got to make a decision about what side of the equation they sit on, and if they don't, it's their mistake. Wow. So, yeah, look, I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's about all I can say on that. Well, it's going to be an interesting two years. I guess people should be waiting for that window to open and be ready to know what they're going to do. Well, this has all been super fascinating, and I I think you've done a lot to add to our knowledge of the human story, and that's truly amazing. Before we really start wrapping this up, I'm curious if you could elaborate a little more on your relationship with the elders or how it's grown over time. Obviously, you're very respectful of their traditions, and you've kind of talked about this a little bit, but how do they feel about you sort of becoming an ambassador to the world? I mean, do they actively want to re-educate the world or are they sort of indifferent or private? Yeah, no, there's a lot that ring. and I get phone calls probably twice a week from elders. I spoke to one today. Two. Two. Yeah, two today. They ring up and they talk to me for a while. They're not sure. They want to find out what I'm on about. And then... I mean, so I'm going to tell you now, there's some elders who can't stand me. But that's part of the deal anywhere, okay? But there are many, many elders that stand by me. And most importantly, that my boss, even though he's passed on, everyone in the country knows Kana, and they don't argue with him. And the fact that I've got those rocks is known throughout the whole country. There's some elders who aren't happy about it, but most are. And most of them don't want to touch it. In fact, all of them don't want to touch it. And I've got that right, and I've earned that right. So it's a gradual process. But what I find is that when the time's right, the elders get in contact with me and tell me more. But I don't chase. You're not supposed to chase people up. They'll come when they want to. So it's it's a gradual process. But being given ceremony by Kano, 
opens all our doors because it gives us the right. We have what's called Wirich and Blackfella, Whitefella dreaming. That's what we have to preach and we have to talk about that constantly. And the job I was given was to find Whitefella signs to validate the Blackfella story. Mm. The elders know that's what we're doing. Some of them may not like me personally. I'm not sure that I like myself personally when it comes to that, so I have no issue with that. But they do know what we're doing is for the betterment of the original culture. They're not arguing that point. So, yeah, we're doing that and we continue doing that. And I take all my cues from elders who give me information. And I'm pleased when I say I got it wrong earlier. Some people say I should dot the I's and cross the T's. I say bugger that. I'll just go straight ahead and dot them <laughs> later. And if I've got to change them around, I will. And I've made some mistakes, not major ones, but minor ones, and I admit that that's the case. But the most important part was I was told to get the story out as quickly as possible. And I still got my elder watching me um, in, in eagle form, and he's made that very clear. Hmm. And I won't go into that, but it's been very clear. No one would argue the point that he's been he's been there. He's watching us. So we have to keep doing this. Our job is to get it out, and that's what we do. Wow. Any way we can. Touche to that. And how would you like to see your work impact the world? I mean, of course, you're rewriting the human story, and that's important. But what else would you like to see emerge from that that the listeners should probably know? That people understand that what we have today is a facade and what we had long ago many times was so much better that's what i wanted to know and i want people to know that as a group humans as a group can still change this place we can fix things up i was around in the early late 70s sorry mid 70s and early six late 60s where humans did change things we stopped a war in Vietnam because it was wrong. And people did start to think differently. And what's happened over the last 20 years in particular, humans have been dumbed down. What I want is I want people to start thinking again. That's basically it. I want them to start thinking again and realise that they have a right to change this world if it's broken, and it is broken. That's what we want. The original people want us to, want them to listen to the wisdom we had in the past and remind them that wisdom is still here and it won't go away, nor should it. And if it comes back, we'll have something worthwhile to give our grandchildren. And if it doesn't, give up. That's the truth. Wow. I love it, man. And you are just so knowledgeable and dedicated. It is really admirable. Would you like to remind the people about the book and the website and how they can follow up or get involved in the noble mission here before we really close it out? Thanks, mate. Normally I get my son to do this stuff. I always never do this because I don't like reading stuff. Look, the book we've got called Out of Australia comes out through Hampton Road and it's the book we're pushing more than any other book because it's been picked up by an American publisher and we do want this message to get out throughout the world. The other two things I'd recommend people look at is our website, which is called Forgotten Origin. And we did a webinar recently which had major problems, I've got to tell you, because the communication system in Australia is appalling, but we did get it up. And what we're going to do is every couple of months is we're going to drag in elders and maybe get people from overseas. We've got some people from overseas well-known that are keen to be part of this. And you'll get to hear the elders tell their story, and it's called The Secret History of Australia. It's really the secret history of the world. The webinar is called It's All About Australia, which is what it is, but everything is about Australia. And it's all around Australia. So look at those things, please, because that's where we're getting that information out. And any time we find any new information, we don't hold it for a book. We do put books out, 
but we put the information out first. Everything in our books there we have put out first. We don't believe in holding information as some people do so they can profit on Yeah, we want to make some money. God, Greg, by all means, we do need to make some money. Please buy a book out of Australia. Amen. But that book, first of all, all that information was given freely first, then put into book form. And if you want to pay some money so we give some back, that would be great. But the whole purpose of this is to get the information out as quickly as possible because, ladies and gentlemen, remember what the elders have told me to tell everyone is your time to make a decision is running out. Remember, there's two ways to decide. More of the same or change the whole thing. Only one of them's right. Hmm. Well said, man. And I really, again, do love the book. I think what you said a few moments ago about finding the white man's science to validate the black man's story. I think that's a great way to say like what the book does. And it's full of great information and great science and great discoveries and the genetic data. So it is awesome. And thanks again, Stephen. Great talking with you. Keep doing what you do. And I guess we'll just brace ourselves for the road ahead. Won't we ever. And thanks so much, Greg. And thanks for the great questions. And thank you for reading the book. It's really pleasant to spend two hours with someone who actually read the book and knew what we're on about. Thanks so much, <laughs> mate. I really enjoyed it. Good you on you. You got it. You got it. All right, man. Take care. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, mate. Hell of a show, people. There we go. Steven Strong. He's got the information. He's got the passion. And he's got jokes. All the ingredients for the best tasting of higher side soups. I really appreciate his work. One thing I probably should have asked him but didn't get to would be if it's possible that a group of people might tend to overinflate their personal importance in the human story. But then again, the genetic data and the ancient sites and the hybrid hieroglyphs at least suggest there's something out of place in the story, a big something. I still do love hearing the oral history and cosmology from isolated pockets of people. I think it needs to be filtered just a little bit, but it's got to be way more on point than what the manipulative authorities try to suggest. So these are really fun and useful shows to me. And that story about the elder disappearing right in front of a group of them. Wow. I don't know the next time I'll talk to Graham Hancock, but I'll surely ask him about that. You know, we did that one hour episode to promote the latest book he wrote. And in that one, he told us he'd come back for a full show. But it hasn't been a good time for him yet, apparently. And I know he's a busy guy, and I know there's a thousand podcasts now that are all considered equal. But either way, really interesting stuff. The genetic data gets a little over my head, but I guess if we're really suggesting an origin that is from a mix of various alien races starting their own branches of humans, then I guess it is going to be a bit all over the place. I don't know. I think most of that genetic data is always done with the assumption that we have a common ancestor. And it seems like maybe we don't. It's such a bold claim to say that aliens not only came here and genetically engineered us once, but several different beings came from different areas of the cosmos. And some of us are built to be highly evolved vessels for Pleiadian consciousness, and some were built to be obedient workers for the mines of Africa. If you get into certain taboo material, there is a suggestion of similar things that gets quite racist. We talk about theosophy and its influence a lot. But if I'm not mistaken, at its deepest levels, or some of its branches, it does talk about certain races being more evolved to understand and practice the esoteric arts while others just don't have it in them. 
and that's a slippery slope. But today we were really talking about indigenous Australians versus indigenous Africans. But those motifs are definitely still involved. And I always kind of liked the thought that we were designed to be obedient workers because so many of us do seem to be programmed to obey. Sure, maybe it's schooling, maybe it's just society, but I'm sure a lot of us who follow a show like this can recognize that we seem to be just a little bit different than the masses, right? <laughs> Did the Pleiadians give us a rebellious streak or what? I guess we got to speculate in those areas, but Stephen did bring enough hard data to the table to know that we need to make some changes in history, and I can't wait for that portal to open, let me tell you. As always, we get by here by putting out the first hour for free and reserving the second hour of these interviews for paid supporters, five bucks a month, five shows a month, and today's second half we got into information and story about the magic rocks that Stephen has been tasked with being the custodian of how the Australian original stories about their animals like the dingo and kangaroo, as well as their genetic data, might tie into the theme of otherworldly origins. And probably my favorite part, Stephen's plan to use what he's learned along with the help of others and the magical rocks he has to open a publicly available portal on a sacred island that translates to Gateway to the Heavens. I will be planning a trip. You can bet your ass on that. We talked about why the Egyptians have more right to set up an embassy in Australia than the British do, the history of Australia's colonial takeover, how it differs from what happened with Columbus in America and how it affected the people of Tasmania, how ancient, largely unknown sites in Australia compare and often dwarf the scale of more famous sites around the planet, and a sad tale about the struggle with the Australian government to keep them from bulldozing through an ancient seven-step pyramid to make way for some stupid highway extension. All good stuff, so if you like the first half, it's literally twice as long, like all the shows here are, if you're willing to throw me a bone. Definitely pick up his book. Thanks again to Mr. Strong. I've done my part, and I'll see you next time. Your move, history book crafters, human story alters, and Pleiadian engineers of the Australian originals. Your fucking mood. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was a light coming down from the sky Those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light Put people up tight Leave blue-green footprints That glow in the dark I hope they get home you please take me along I won't do anything wrong hey Mr. Spaceman won't you please take me along the high side woke up this morning I was feeling quite weird I 
had flies in my beard My toothpaste was smeared I opened my window They'd written my name Said, so long, we'll see Thank you.